on to our four weeks together in March. Can you hear me okay in the back? Okay. Want to welcome those who are just joining us for these four weeks and also want to appreciate the ones who have been practicing since the beginning of February and are really, in a way, uh, holding us, at least initially. And the, those who are um, newly arriving, in a sense, may, gi may give to those who have been here for a while, maybe a sense of freshness and enthusiasm and energy. So my name is uh, Donald Rothberg. And I uh, want to, again, welcome everyone. I want to introduce uh, the team that will be here for these next four weeks. Uh, just name them. And tomorrow morning, we'll each speak a little more fully about our um, interest and background, briefly. So on my right, uh, Sharda Rogel, Elisa Dennis, who is uh, a teacher in training, and Donald Rothberg, Oren J. Sofer, Dara Williams, Amana Johnson, who is also a teacher in training and also will be our movement teacher teaching yoga, and then Heather Sundberg, Tonight we'll have a, uh, a talk. The, those of you uh, familiar with retreats often would expect the first night refuges and precepts and establishing the retreat container, but we're gonna partly to get right into the retreat and also have the, um, what the meeting of the, those here freshly and those who've been here for, for four weeks, we'll have a talk which I'm gonna give. <laughs> and I want to, uh, just before giving the talk, also acknowledge that uh, the land we're on was originally uh, Coast Miwok, Native American, and they are still nearby. Many of you may know that. They're still uh, living not far away in the area of uh, Ronart Park. So in a way, all of us have entered into a journey. Some, the intensification of the journey is starting this evening and others have been on this, again, this journey of intensive training uh, since the beginning of February. And um, I'm, I'm pleased to return because I was also on retreat with uh, the February group for the first few weeks. So I'm, you know, I was, I was sitting there in the dining hall wondering who's gonna stay? <laughs> you know, who's gonna be there and stay? And who will I see when I come back? And who won't I see? Oh my gosh, right? So it's, uh, it's wonderful to see those that I remember from the dining hall and the hall uh, being here. 
So again, we're, we, we're, we've already in a way left on a journey probably well before we came here. We've uh, in a way not taken uh, life for granted maybe in the way that we might have originally. And we're doing our own version of this uh, prototypical journey that we see, for example, in the life of the Buddha where at a certain point we want to go deeper, we want to see more, we want to understand, or for some of us we want to understand suffering or heal and so forth. We have different motivations, but we've all had something that woke us up and led us to look more deeply And to have the level of dedication to that deeper looking that brings us um, here tonight. And so what I wanted to talk about this evening is the nature of the particular journey that we're on this month. And in particular, we're undergoing a training or continuing a deep training. And I wanted to give a kind of a map of the elements of the training that we'll be pursuing. You know, having that map can be very helpful. There was uh, one of the great uh, yogis of the uh, 20th century said, if you don't know where you are going, you will wind up somewhere else. That's uh, Yogi Berra. <laughs> For those who don't know, he was a uh, professional baseball player with the New York Yankees. And he, it was said that he, his batting stance reminded someone of a, of a um, Yogi, you know, like a, and so he got named Yogi. Anyway, but nonetheless, wise statement. Um, I'm thinking that we train in six main areas here, you know, at the, at the retreat. And I want to really explore those and talk about those, those six. Um, the first could be said that we keep on developing our perspective of why we're doing this. We, we, develop what in Buddhist tradition would be called wise view or right view. The, you know, our understanding of why we're doing this, what we're doing. You know, our, our larger perspective for our practice. And we, we connect that with our intentions. So I'm going to talk some about that. What are we doing? Why are we here? <laughs> and uh, secondly, the development of samadhi the development of concentration, stability, the capacity to settle. Without that settling, we really can't see clearly. And then the third area is, is specifically the area of cultivating insights, particularly through the development of mindfulness. and coming to see more and more deeply, coming to, coming to insights, 
And we all explore what are those insights? Many of us have been practicing insight meditation for years and they wonder, what are the insights? Where are the insights? When are they coming? Have I had them? So I'm not gonna resolve all that, but we'll explore that area. And then the fourth area, you know, if the third area is about insight and cultivating wisdom, the fourth area is about developing the, the kind heart, developing the heart of compassion, you know, through our, what we often call our heart practices, loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity especially. The fifth area is grounding in the body. Very, very crucial in um, the West, I would say. And then the sixth area is touching freedom. Is coming to know increasingly moments of freedom and sometimes having that freedom become more and more stable in our being, in our, in our hearts and minds and bodies. And this, these are the areas we train in. I think there also are a number of areas that really, in, in my mind, fill out our practice, but that we may do more at home or in the mix of daily life. You know, how do we bring our practice into our work, into our relationships, into our citizenship, our engagement in the world? How do we bring our practice more fully uh, alive as ethical practice? You know, it's a basis here, but the exploration of that may occur elsewhere. Similarly, there may be areas in our lives needing healing, where there may be wounds or areas we need to attend to. And this, that gets addressed sometimes in retreats, but sometimes needs the focus that can best occur outside of retreat. And similarly, the same thing, where I think an important part of our practice is also working through our social conditioning. You know, whether it's around race or gender, sexual orientation, age, ability, and so forth, right? That we all have conditioning there, which tends to uh, sometimes blind us and distort things. And again, some of that may come up, but the, I think the main field for that kind of practice is not doing those uh, core practices I mentioned. I just wanted to name that just so um, I think the retreat practice and daily life practice is complementary in many ways. So the first area is what we might call wise view or, or right view. What's our perspective? And here I think we can go back to the uh, statement of the Buddha I teach dukkha and the end of dukkha. And I like to interpret dukkha, usually translated as suffering, I like to translate it as reactivity, as the mind not being at peace, as either grabbing hold of something, grasping or pushing it away. You know, and there's a core teaching 
which I think brings out, this for me is the deeper meaning of dukkha. In the, in the text, it's used in a number of different ways. But I think the deeper meaning for our practice is cultivating non-reactivity. You know, the, the text that brings us out the most is called the teaching of the two arrows, where the Buddha asked, everyone at times experiences the unpleasant. How does a practitioner differ from a non-practitioner? They did not answer. And so he, as he often did, he would answer his own questions. And he said, everyone at times has unpleasant experiences. And he, in the text, it's particularly about physically unpleasant, but we could also talk about difficult emotions, difficult interactions with others, uh, difficult thoughts and so forth, painful thoughts and so forth. Everyone at times experiences that. We might think of not being treated fairly and so forth. And he says, everyone at times experiences that, both a practitioner and non-practitioner. <clears throat> what differentiates the two is that the non-practitioner, which includes us when we're not practicing, just to be clear, <laughs> um, the non-practitioner tends to react to that first unpleasant experience. The Buddha called the first unpleasant experience the first arrow. And he said that the non-practitioner will shoot a second arrow after having been shot by the first arrow as if this would help. So we may tense physically around something unpleasant physically or blame ourselves or blame someone else. We have a difficult emotion or thought we may react, again, blame ourselves, blame others, create some negative narratives. You know, you know the story, right? Same thing with interactions. We may uh, have a difficult interaction and, and think about it for the next two weeks or two years. That's called shooting the second arrow. The aim of practice is not to avoid the first arrow, but it's to learn not to shoot the second arrow. And the second arrow is really, we could say, it's that reactivity, especially in the text, it's particularly the pushing away of the unpleasant, but we could say the other form of reactivity is grabbing at the pleasant. And the perspective of practice, if we use this text especially as a basis, is that we learn, we explore, especially reactivity and learn to see our reactivity increasingly, see through it, cultivate non-reactivity in certain ways, and become increasingly non-reactive, which does not mean non-responsive. I think that uh, the opposite of reactivity is responsiveness. We could say it's being responsive rather than reactive. Moment to moment, whether it's in our meditative experience or in our interactions? How can I be skillful and responsive rather than reactive in, the, in those two main ways? Non-reactivity is necessary to see clearly, to have wisdom. We don't see clearly when we're caught in reactivity. So, to me, this is the, really the heart of our practice, that we have to express it quite simply and understand that, you know, what does the end of dukkha mean? Especially it means 
being able to be present, responsive, non-reactive. And of course, this is what we explore in our practice. Often more than we wish. I remember when I was first practicing, I thought that I would just um, have beautiful, powerful experiences and they would just get better and better. That was when I was starting. And I think probably the promotional literature of the meditation centers encouraged that. They did not say, come, study your 10 main forms of reactivity. Come to enjoy learning about them. How many of you would have signed up for that? Some of you. So, and then along with that sense of perspective or wise view, what are we doing? We also try to focus on skillful intention. In the light of that perspective, moment to moment, what's skillful? What's skillful right now? We continually ask that question. It's a way of making possible that responsiveness. And so this will be something that we'll continue with just to keep that perspective of why we practice. And again, uh, the horizon of non-reactivity can sound modest, but that non-reactivity opens up insight and ultimately it opens up freedom. The second area is the development of samadhi or concentration. The ability to have the mind be settled, stabilized, to be able to attend to experience increasingly in a direct way without the ordinary mind going in all sorts of directions. And of course, we want to have patience in in developing that settling. Many of us believe that even the word concentration isn't the best word because in English, at least, it can imply some kind of over-efforting, some striving, some, I will concentrate, like that. And so some of us prefer words like settling or stabilizing or Uh, developing composure. Uh, Richard Shankman, who taught the last month, has a nice way of talking about it. He says that samadhi is unifying the mind in steady, undistracted awareness. And so this is, it's, it's actually a natural quality that we're cultivating more, that many of us may have had moments of just the mind being quiet, maybe in the wilds or at certain moments in our experience where the mind becomes quiet. And so in a way we, we cultivate samadhi, but we really open to something that's really quite a natural quality. You know, I, I remember one day when I really saw this very clearly when I was like 20 or something, I was in school and one of the few times I pulled like an all nighter writing an essay. I was just really, really focused and um, you know, no distractions, like for hours and hours and hours. And then 
I, the, the, I was finished, the morning came and I walked into the morning and it was like, uh, everything was sparkling. Everything was alive and, I mean, you know that experience, right? That something the mind had quieted just on its own. And yet we can also learn better to stabilize. And some of you who've been here for this month have been actually practicing to cultivate uh, that stability of mind. And we, we, we all do it to a certain extent. And for many of us, it's actually a missing piece in our practice. This may be something we haven't developed so much. It can be really, really valuable for the capacity to not be so caught by our distractions, by our many habits of mind. Do not be caught in reactivity. We also get through the, the stabilized mind, a sense of a very uh, profound inwardness that has uh, tremendous power and beauty and a sense of like, what else do I need in life? <laughs> Sometimes it's like that. We have that capacity to have uh, our own inner being be a source of tremendous power and strength. And again, that stability of mind is necessary to see clearly from the Buddha. Practitioners develop samadhi or concentration. A practitioner who is concentrated understands things as they really are. A direct connection between developing stability of mind and seeing clearly. Which connects with the third, the third kind of uh, practice, which is that of developing mindfulness that leads to insight. This is really our core practice that we'll be staying with for hours and hours and hours. I like a, a phrase from the British teacher, uh, Rob Rebea, about insight practice. He, he uses the phrase, seeing that frees, as a, another way to talk about insight. And again, our core practice is to notice moment to moment what our experience is. To notice, to attend to, moment to moment, as, as all of you have been doing for some time, to attend moment to moment to our experience with the intention that over time that attending brings insight and ultimately brings liberating insight. Just that over and over again, noticing as much as possible with that non-reactive awareness I heard just this morning a beautiful phrase from the uh, writer and photographer uh, Teju Cole. Uh, he spoke about a word in the Inuit language, you know, from the uh, you know northern areas, 
uh, near Alaska. There's a word uh, which I'll uh, pronounce as quartzaluni. And that word means sitting together in the dark. This is our practice. <laughs> we will, especially those who close our eyes, we're just sitting together. Or, no, I didn't get the whole thing. Sitting together in the dark, waiting for something to happen. <laughs> sitting together, that's what we do. It was four weeks, four weeks, we'll sit together. If we have our eyes closed in a sense of the dark, we'll sit together in the dark, waiting for something to happen and trying to notice what's happening. That's like, that's it. That's it, sitting together in the dark, waiting for something to happen. Thing and you don't have to make something happen because things will happen. Okay, thoughts will occur, the breath will keep happening, and so forth. You know, and it's it's actually not a bad practice just to keep asking, what's happening? What's happening now? You know, I had a a friend when I was in college who probably uh, took a few too many substances. But he, for about one year, virtually the only thing he said was, what's happening? <laughs> I, I always think of him in relation, <laughs> in relation to mindfulness practice, but that's our practice, what's happening? <laughs> and so we, you know, our mindfulness practice and the traditional model of the four foundations, we attend to the experience of the body we attend to our thoughts and emotions. We attend to, very importantly, related to that looking into reactivity, we attend to our sense of the pleasant, the unpleasant, and the neutral. Because the basic idea is when we don't notice the pleasant, when we're not mindful, we'll tend to grab for it. We don't notice the unpleasant, we'll tend to react against it. And when we don't notice the neutral, we'll tend to space out. That was a, a summary of what sometimes in our practice are called the root, the root problems, uh, greed, hatred, and delusion. And we can just watch that moment to moment in our experience. And then we also start to look as well as some of the larger patterns of experience. And we come increasingly to insight. You know, our practice is really based on the notion that the core issue in human life is actually not evil, but ignorance. It's not knowing ourselves, not seeing ourselves clearly. I remember there's a line in the, um, I think the eighth century Mahayana teacher, Shanti Deva. He says, this world is beset with insanity due to the exertions of those who are confused by them, about themselves. Don't have to look too far <laughs> to see that. And so our path is insight to cut through that ignorance. And in particular, our mindfulness practice and our insight practice opens up three ways of seeing that bring us freedom. And in the text, these are really focused on, these are seeing into the impermanent nature of things, often in a very simple way, just noticing change and impermanence, 
Secondly, seeing into the nature of dukkha, which goes back to noticing reactivity in its different forms. And then thirdly, seeing the nature of self and increasingly experiencing with a, without a sense of self-reference. We'll explore these teachings and practices uh, later in the retreat. And that last one is the most uh, complicated, so I'm not gonna complete the discussion of that tonight. But just to say these are traditionally, these are the deep areas of insight. We open in those three ways And then we also open to a deep freedom, which is sometimes called Nibbana. The fourth area of training is to cultivate the kind heart. And again, it's complementary that the insight opens up our wisdom and we complement that by holding it, everything with kindness and compassion. And so here we'll be practicing the Brahma-vihara, the heart practices of loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Some of us will be practicing those a lot. You know, a month retreat is a beautiful opportunity or a two-month retreat to, to have a sustained cultivation of the kind heart. It really can be a very beautiful way to take uh, a week, several weeks. And as our our practice matures, our insight practice and our heart practice become integrated. Different forms when we start, but they get more and more connected. It's just this amazing, uh, amazing intention. You know, much like from the wisdom perspective, we try to come with clear seeing and non-reactivity moment to moment. We also, from the perspective of the heart practices, our attention is moment by moment to come with kindness. You know, initially kindness for ourselves or some others and over time it becomes something that becomes like a default way of being. We try to bring kindness to every moment so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, from the, from the Metta Sutta, the text on loving kindness. And it's really a, um, a cultivation that we find in virtually all spiritual traditions. This is from the Jewish tradition in the Talmud. It said, the highest form of wisdom is kindness. That interesting, the highest form of wisdom is kindness. Or from the Christian tradition, Thomas Merton, our job is to love others without stopping to inquire whether or not they are worthy. From the Islamic tradition, from, uh, from Rumi, 
Love is the water of life. Drink it down with heart and soul. And so that's a focus. And again, some of us will, all of us will touch that and cultivate that. Some of us will want to do that with a lot of depth. This is from uh, one of the great Tibetan teachers, Long Chenpa, from the 14th century. Out of the soil of loving kindness grows the beautiful bloom of compassion to be watered by tears of joy under the cool shade of the tree of equanimity. (laughs) And the fifth practice is to ground in the body. Really, really central. We do this especially through mindfulness of the body and through the movement practice, through the yoga practice. It's hard to be present without being present to our bodies. And yet for many of us, the conditioning has been quite strong uh, not to be so much in our bodies. There's a a line that some of you may know from uh, the writer James Joyce in a short story he said, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. (laughs) Right, and anyone relate to that? (laughs) Or at some point, you know, I know that uh, even though when I was younger, I was actually a competitive swimmer for 10 years, ages 10 to 20, very physical, but not aware of my body. And one of the powerful learnings when I first started meditating was to be more present to my body. So the conditioning is strong, obviously with all the electronic technology, you know, we can, many of us even have jobs where we're just in a mental or even virtual realm much of the day, right? And so the grounding in the body, really, really crucial, I think really crucial for the culture to, to do that. Eventually we ground more in the body and we connect. We learn to be more with the body, which helps us for many of us to be more present to our emotions. And we become in a way uh, more integrated. The different parts of ourselves become more connected. We also, again, we do that through yoga and we also even try to bring the body in. Many of us try to bring the body in with the heart practices, have an embodied wise heart that we develop, that integration. Ultimately, the practices, um, all of these, I'm mentioning these as separate, but they really get integrated. One of my Tibetan teachers, Mingya Rinpoche, he once said, if you do different practices, more or less, not too far away in time, they will mingle which I think what we do. Our practices will mingle and integrate. One of the great teachers in the Thai forest tradition, which is one of the main lineages that really informs Spirit Rock, Achan Man, who was one that really could be said to be the founder of the Thai forest tradition. He said, in your investigation, 
Never allow the body to desert the mind for anywhere else. In your investigation, never allow the body to desert the mind for anywhere else. And so for a lot of us, this, is, this, this will be an edge of our practice and something really important. And it takes time. The conditioning that many of us had is um, been there for a long time. The last area that I want to mention, and um, I'm calling it touching freedom. You know, that all of these practices let us touch these moments. Sometimes they're moments, sometimes they, it can be stabilized for a period of time. A moment of non-reactivity Full, you know, feeling fully present, clear seeing, open heart. We touch these moments where in those moments we are, um, we are free. We are not bound by the conditioning, by the reactivity. can take different forms, again, sometimes through the heart, sometimes through just very simply being with the sunset or being with the tree or being with your breath. And to feel that there's sort of unencumbered awareness. Or sometimes we may touch in our mindfulness practice or in other practices, an awareness which starts to become big and starts to hold all of our experiences. And that sometimes seems to even become verging on being limitless. And we can touch that for moments and sometimes for more than a few moments. There's a chant which is often given uh, or practiced in particularly Asian communities, sometimes uh, practiced in retreats. And it brings out that uh, capacity really for us to touch freedom at any, any moment. You know, there's both a way in which our practice is gradual and we open up to more and more freedom, but there's that sense that the freedom is actually there available at any moment. The chant goes, Swakato Bhagavata Dhammo Sanditi Ko Akali Ko Ehi Pasi Ko Opanai Ko Pachatangwe Ditapo Winyuhiti the, the meaning of those, it's really proclaiming you know, the qualities of the Buddha, but particularly this um, availability of freedom. Swakato Bhagavata Dhammo, discovered and well-proclaimed by the Buddha, by the Blessed One. Sanditiko, apparent, 
here and now. Directly visible. Akaliko, immediate, right here. Ehipasiko, come and see. Take a look. Opanayeko, onward leading. Pachatangwe, ditapo, when you hiti, experienceable by the wise. Again, talked about in different ways, and we can touch again that freedom just in a moment of non-reactive being with the breath or with a sound or with a meal. And again, it can sometimes be, feel more intense or powerful. In the Thai forest tradition, different language was used by different teachers. They said, we come back at times to what Achan Man called the primal mind. Achan Cha, the teacher of Jack Kornfield, who uh, uh, I once met and studied with, he talked about the original mind, the one who knows that we can touch. And so, in a sense, one, another way to look at our training here is that on the basis of all of these practices, we increasingly touch moments of freedom, whatever we call them, non-reactivity, openness, clarity. And we touch them increasingly in these protected environments of meditation, of retreat. We let them get bigger on retreat. We let them stabilize some. And then we bring them into our daily lives. This is the trajectory, you know, that we train, really think of this as a training. We train here, we can learn, we can stabilize, and things can really develop. I know from the scientific literature, for example, on developing concentration is that concentration can actually be learned, meaning we don't always go back to square one. You practice concentration and, you know, two years later, you start at a higher bar, so to speak. We can learn these things. It can, if we keep practicing, things can really develop in that way. So I'll finish with uh, one of my favorite passages. This is from one of the great uh, uh, Indian uh, teachers named Talopa from, from about, uh, about the year 1000, living in India. He says, in the early practice, the mind is like a stream rushing through a gorge. In the middle, the mind is like the river Ganges, flowing along gently. At the end, the mind is like the rivers joining the ocean, like the reunion of daughters with their mother. And so you may hear these listings of these uh, core practices that are 
part of our training and maybe some of them resonate more. You can listen for that. Which of these practices call you? Even some of those here for their second months, does does something uh, call you further to develop? You know, the first uh, perspective, the perspective of what we're doing, why we're doing this. Secondly, the development of more stability of mind. Thirdly, the development of mindfulness and insight. Fourthly, the cultivation of the kind heart and different manifestations. And fifthly, the uh, grounding in the body or the further grounding in the body, the connection of all of the other practices to a more full embodiment. And then all of those practices leading to the sixth area, which is this touching of freedom. Again, touching it in different ways, small ways, uh, larger ways, non-dramatic ways, more dramatic ways, touching that getting more and more familiar with that freedom and then bringing it out in our lives for the benefit of all beings. sit quietly for a few further moments and see if there is any reflection that on what may have resonated with you or what calls you at this time. So thank you so much for your kind attention. I know many of you have traveled and gone through all sorts of things to be here. And thank you for that uh, kind attention.